Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala. This morning, we are going to continue on with our 20 questions series on the basics every Christian should know, basic theological questions. And we're going to ask the question of what is sin? Last week, Chris Altrock, preaching minister here at Highland Church of Christ, he brought to us the topic of what is man? And the basic, I guess you'd say, thesis of that is that as man, as humanity, we're all made in the image of God, and there's a certain inextricable value that comes with being made in His image. A lot that could be said about that. Today, though, we're going to look at, perhaps you could say, almost the yin and the yang of being a human is both our image bearing, that we we bear the image of God, but also that we have a sinful nature, that we all sin, that we all transgress, that we all make mistakes. And so David will look at this. And then, of course, next week, how do we remedy this tension between our sin and our image uh, as, as being an ambassador, an image bearer of God? Well, that is going to be Christ. And so next week, we'll look at who is Christ. So I'm very excited to hear from David this morning on the topic of sin. So let's go to David right now. All right, good morning. Well, today we're answering question seven. So we're in this um, series, 20 questions, the basics every Christian should know. So the idea here, we want to be a class, a faith family that uh, is focused on several things, one of which is we want to form real community and relationships with each other that matter beyond just kind of the formal, almost kind of church weirdness. Like we dress up, come sit in rows, kind of do this whatever it is that we're doing on, on Sunday mornings. But we want to have relationships that go beyond that, but that are based on something that matters. So we want to base those relationships on what we teach on Sunday morning. So really in three areas. One is the Bible. So if you're a part of this class, I think we ought to know the Bible. So we're really committed to teaching the Bible. We went through the, the a overview of the whole Bible um, uh, this year, and so, so finish that up. Another is theology. So we want to teach how when you put the Bible together and make sense of it, what is it that the Bible's teaching? That's theology. And then third is application. So every third or fourth series, we kind of take a break from the more heady intellectual stuff and talk about, well, how do we live this out? How do you, how does this apply in your marriage and your friendships and your relationships as a parent, whatever? So kind of three areas, Bible, theology, and uh, practical application. So uh, this is obviously a theology series, and we're going through 20 questions that every Christian should know the answer to. Now, nobody wants to do a 20-week series, right? So we break it up. We'll do four or five weeks, and we take a break and talk about something else and come back. So this is kind of our second round, um, and we're answering question seven today. Chris did question six last week. So here are the 20 questions. What is the Bible? What is God like? What is the Trinity? What is creation? What is prayer? And what is man? Those are the first six questions that we've already done. So we're on question seven today. We've got some really interesting questions here uh, as we head uh, towards the end. We'll finish this sometime in the spring of 2020. So just be patient. We're kind of walking through slowly. We'll do four or five lessons in theology, take a break, talk about some other topic, do a a four-week series on marriage or do a four-week series on the book of Galatians then come back and pick it back up but if you come to class walk through it stay with us you'll go through the 20 most predominant themes in Christian theology so it's one of the cool things about coming to church every Sunday is if you just do it you can really cover a lot of material uh, over a, a period of time so we are on question seven today what is sin so obviously if you're like picking topics it's not might not be the one you either want to teach or, or come to what is man what Chris taught last week in some ways that that's, that's an easier lesson to teach or more fun to teach, I guess. It's not easier, but more fun to teach. Because you talk about how valuable humanity is. We're made in God's image. God loves us. Um, 
God has a plan and design for our lives. And then, you know, uh, Kyle will talk next week on who is Christ, and we got lessons on what does it mean to become a Christian, what is the resurrection, really powerful stories about how much God loves us and kind of how the gospel fits in that context. But I think for all that to matter, this lesson is really, really important. So I don't know that I'm necessarily going to enjoy saying the things I'm fixing to say. I don't know that we'll necessarily enjoy hearing the things I'm fixing to say. Um, But I think, I don't talk about this a lot, but I think in this one context, uh, my experience and kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis as, as a doctor matters. And what I mean by that is when you give somebody good news, you have a solution to their problem, it only makes sense in the context that there is a problem. Right. So if I have a, if if I was you know sitting in counseling with a patient and I said I've got a medicine that can cure your heart failure and they don't know or believe that they have heart failure that plan will make no sense. Right. It makes no sense. And so really in the context of our lives in the context of the gospel the idea that Jesus died for your sins and loves you even though you're a sinner that message doesn't resonate and doesn't matter if we don't first understand what we need to be saved from. And so that's the question of sin. So that's why the context of the good news makes the most sense and is the most powerful if we're honest about the bad news, even though that's hard. Does that make sense? So not trying to be overly negative today, not trying to bring um, really even my own opinions in this. I want to try to really rely on the Bible, as you'll see. We'll be uh, in the text a lot this morning. Um, But I think it's important that we're honest about what the Bible says, and then uh, from that we can really see uh, what the gospel is. So, in this series, we want to, number one, understand, articulate, and defend basic truths of the Christian faith. So, I think we can do all three of those things. I want you to be able to understand what Christianity is. We want to be able to, to, to articulate it, to explain it to our children, and defend it. So, when you're talking with a secular friend at work or in the coffee shop or whatever, in a, a nice, kind, loving way, we want to be able to explain Christianity in a way that makes sense and is defensible. Uh, like I said, it's a patient process. So it's going to take 20 weeks to hang in there. And then hopefully we can become closer to each other when we better understand what it is that we have in common, what we share. Okay, so let's, let's start by talking about what is sin, okay? So I think I want to say on the outset, I just want to ask you a question, a rhetorical question. Think about this for yourself. Do you hate sin? Not people who commit sin, but do you hate sin itself? Well, I think you got we got to understand what sin is, and then we got to think about why should we hate it. We'll get to the definition in, in just a minute, but I want to talk real briefly about God's original designs. So we've we've drawn this up on the board, and we've gone through the story of the Bible before. But remember, Genesis one through three is really the setup for the rest of the Bible. So yet Genesis one, right here in the very beginning, God creates the universe. There's lots of theories. Scientifically, how exactly did that happen? How much of the first part of Genesis is uh, theology and maybe even mythology? How much of it is historically and scientifically true? What is actually going on in the text? Those are kind of questions for another day. I want to focus on the point in Genesis 1, which is that God created a world and it was, the word that keeps being repeated in in the creation text is the world was what? It was good. It was good. So that's key, right? God creates a good world, a good world. But then in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. This is sometimes called the fall, right? So this is a really important concept to do biblical theology. So if we want to do theology, we want to understand the story of the Bible. So God creates the world is good in Genesis 3, in Genesis 1. Then in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, right? This is in Genesis 3, sin enters the world, 
in the rest of the Bible is not our working through history, but God working through history to try to restore this relationship. So God is only in relationship with things that are good and holy, and this, that relationship is broken through the, po- through the power of sin. And then the rest of the Bible is God working through history, working through a particular family to restore this relationship. Okay? It's interesting to me, you, what is the sin that's committed in Genesis 3? Well, it's a sin of, of putting ourself in God's place, of claiming authority for what is right and what is wrong instead of God. So you really, um, Eve is having this argument with Satan, right? And the, the question is, did God really say that that was wrong? Did God really say that that was wrong? And of course, Eve knows the answer to that. But, but how she behaves is not consistent with what she says she believes, right? She believes that God told her that it was wrong, but she doesn't really believe it because she's willing to put herself in authority over God and to, and to do what God told her not to do. And so really, that's the ultimate sin, right? That's, what we, that's the sin we're all guilty of. We place ourselves in authority. We choose what's right and wrong. We don't trust in God's authority. So... Sin enters the world, and sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Think about um, Genesis 2, verses 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis 2. That's So Old Testament theology, sin leads to death. New Testament theology, sin leads to death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, verse 23. So if you hate death then you should hate sin because sin leads to death. Sin also destroys cultures and families. You think about um, sexual sin in families, husbands not being faithful to their wives, divorce in families. All these are results. I'm not trying to place guilt or burden on any particular person, but that's a result of sin in our lives, of, of not living out the, the life that God's intended for us. And then most importantly, sin corrupts the imago Dei. So we're created in the image of God, like Chris talked about last week. We're in, immensely valuable in God's eyes regardless of our race, our color, our socioeconomic status, the nation we're born in, the language we speak, our favorite college football team, right? Even that. So God loves us no matter what anyways, and sin corrupts that, right? So this, this is the, the tension in us as humans. We're going to talk about the tension in the gospel later in class, but that's, that's a tension in you as an image bearer. You're created and infinitely loved by a holy and good God. But the great tension is because of the power of sin beginning in Genesis 3, our, our arrow doesn't point towards God anymore. We're bent. We're corrupted in, in, into a sinful nature. And so sin leads to death. And sin, this is our great problem. We like to talk about all the problems in the world. How can we fix uh, politics? How can we fix our neighborhood? How can we fix our house? How can we fix our professional life? How can we fix our marriage, our children, our friendships? I'm not, and I'm not here to say that those problems don't matter. But the ultimate problem that stands above all those is the problem of sin. And so... A hugely negative topic, but a hugely important topic. In fact, I don't think you can understand who you are, or God's plan for you, or your role in life, and kind of really center and identify yourself in being fully human, who you're fully meant to be, unless you understand um, the, the problem of the problem that you ultimately have, which is sin. So, God working through history to conquer sin and its consequences is the biblical story. That's why we have the Bible. This problem started in Genesis 3. God works through this one pagan man who is not a follower of God named Abram and his family to bring about restoration and reunite humanity to himself. That's the story of the Bible, God addressing sin. If it were were not for sin, we wouldn't need this whole story. But we do because we're corrupted, but God yet still loves us, and so he wasn't willing to leave us that way. 
Okay, as a little way of introduction, let's watch a Bible Project video on sin, and then um, I'll have some thoughts. All right, man, those guys at Bible Project, they do such a good job. So I just find that so helpful. They basically say what I'm going to try to say, but quicker and more articulate. But let's see if we can't dive in a little bit together and, and make some sense out of this. Okay, so an obvious question, if we're going to talk about sin, this is a word that's in the Bible. It's a word that I probably don't use six days a week, right? We just think about maybe sin, maybe. We think about it on Sunday. Now it's not in my regular vocabulary, so what is it? <coughs> Well, so the book we're going through, 20 Questions Every Christian Should Know by Wayne Grudem, he defines sin as this way, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So any failure to conform to the moral law and character of God in act, attitude, or nature. So let's just think about this briefly. So an act. What's an act that fails to conform to the law of God? So a good example, they reference the Ten Commandments. I think that's a good place to start. So thou shalt not murder. I think we can all agree on that. That's, that's uh, Exodus 20, verse 13. That's an act that would violate the law of God. But what about an attitude? So how do attitudes affect or violate the character and law of God? So think about um, maybe Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet. That's not one we talk about very much. I think the reason is because we're probably more guilty, more people are guilty of that than, uh, than murder. So covet, this idea that you want, the example given in the Ten Commandments is don't covet your neighbor's house or wife. So this idea that you think, you sit back and you're so jealous of what other people have and wish that you have it. That attitude is sinful. And that's an attitude that we all have from time to time, right? So I think as we think through what sin actually is, we recognize the scope of the problem, right? The, it's, sinners are not just uh, people who um, rape and murder, although that's sin. And they, or, a, a rapist or a murderer encounters the same problem that uh, a, a church-going, covetous uh, man or woman would have. And the same problem is the separation from God. So uh, I think it's important to think through exactly what this is to recognize how big the problem is. And maybe most uncomfortably, sin is actually not just an act or an attitude, but it's, it's part of our nature. And there's mystery here. In fact, there's different doctrinal interpretations of how to think through human sinful natures. It's something we inherit, like as when we're born, are we already sinful? That would be kind of the Calvinist approach. Or is it a, a bent, a distortion in the human bent so that we all will eventually commit sin, but it's not until we commit sin um, that, that we're sinful. Either way, I think we can all agree that this inherited nature that we have, either to sin or to actually have sin within us uh, from birth, is a problem. So think about Ephesians 2, um, this is 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We talk about Ephesians 2, interestingly, in, a, in service this morning, but here's the first part of the chapter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, the, the saints at Ephesus, and Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What an encouraging phrase, you once walked, this past tense. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. So Paul becomes much more encouraging later in in this chapter. But right here, I I think it's important to note where Paul starts the story. By nature, you're a child of wrath. Now, if we're wanting to uh, create like a, um, a, a visitor's welcoming committee, this probably wouldn't be the verse you put on the postcard, right? C- come and learn how you're, by nature, a child of wrath. And, and so I get that. That's not what we want to lead with. But I think it's important to understand, as Christians, what it is, that we're, why we're saved and what we're saved from. So we're saved from our acts, our attitudes, and even our very nature that separates us from God. So God... And so who does it separate us from? It separates us from God. So here's gospel truth. I've got a few of these in this lesson. I just think you can really hang your hat on, hang your worldview on a, a couple of these ideas. And here's one. God is perfectly good in his character. So it's, it's not really sufficient to say that God does good. right? God, in fact, is good. So in the like philosophical sense, we define good not by what God does, but what God is. So things are good because they are consistent with the character and mind and attitudes of God, not because God does them. Right? God, in His essence, is good, and He's also holy. So you might remember what holy means? It means to be separated from sin. So God is good in His character, and He's holy in His distance from sin. God hates sin because it de- directly contradicts everything that He is. All right, so I think good theology always starts with God, and so we got to understand how God is and how He uh, interacts with a sinful world. Okay, so then that's uh, what sin is. This is the truth about us. So, kind of three points I want to make uh, the truth about us, and really I want to try because I don't like these points as much. Um, I want to try to let the Bible make them. Um, maybe a refrain I, I like to repeat when I'm teaching classes: If you came this morning to hear like what my opinions are on sin, I think that was probably a waste of your time. There are people more articulate than me and smarter than me talking about all kinds of ideas on the Sunday morning shows this morning. You could stay, if you just want somebody's opinion, you could stay at home and watch Meet the Press, right? The reason that this matters, what we do on Sunday mornings, is we've placed authority not in our own opinions, but in the Word of God, right? So the, the, the reason sin as a concept matters is not because I think it's interesting or you think it's interesting or because we can construct some kind of worldview out of it, but because because God says the word of God has authority in our lives because we're not going to commit the ultimate sin that Adam and Eve uh, place, which is to put their own wisdom and ideas above the word of God. So the word of God said, do not eat that fruit. Adam and Eve, through their own wisdom and thought, said, it won't be that bad. I'm going to try it. That's, that's deep sin. We're not going to do that. We're going to put God's word in authority in how we think about it. So the truth about us, the first thing I'm going to say is that we have all rebelled against God. Secondly, is that we're separated from God as a result of that rebellion. And then third, is we are spiritually dead without God. So I think these three uplifting ideas can hopefully carry us uh, through the week. The idea here, though, is that this is true. And if this is true, I think the response and the rest of the Christian story matters so much more. Okay, so number one, we've rebelled against God. So in our culture, the idea of sin is not popular, right? We don't, this is not how we talk about things. The modern person, or even the postmodern person, we don't want to see our actions as responsible to God, right? We see our actions ultimately as responsible to ourselves. We say things openly like, be true to yourself. Well, if the Bible is right, and our self is a, a bent nature distorted by sin, then that's almost the worst advice you could give somebody. Be true to yourself. Well, you're, you're distorted. Don't be true to yourself. 
You be true and responsible to God. But, but, but that's uncomfortable. Even, and maybe we won't be true to ourselves, we'll be true to others. So we take the opinion and authority of our peers and the people who surround us at work or on TV or who we interact with in, a, in, a, in the digital world, we, we make their opinions authority. Well, um, we often describe problems as disgraceful, corrupt, prejudicial, social ills, but we rarely describe things as sin. The Bible tells a very different story. Just like the video said, sin literally means to miss the mark, to do the opposite of justice or to transgress God's law. Any action or attitude that is not consistent with God's will for our lives is sin. And this concept, this nature of attitudes and actions that violate God's will and character is not just things that we do, but it's who we are. That's what it means to have a sinful nature. So, so the Bible says that we are all guilty of sin. Uh, maybe I get some people to help me out with reading here. So just uh, if you're willing to, who can read Romans 3? Okay. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2. For whoever keeps the whole law gets doubled at just this point is guilty of breaking the law. 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just give us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we're, claim, oh, sorry. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the word is not in us. So we're all guilty of sin and we're held personally responsible for our sin. Ezekiel 18. Somebody want to read? Who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And Romans 14. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So we're guilty of sin and we're held personally responsible for our sin. That's what the Bible teaches. So secondly, is we are separated from God. Sin separates us from God. The presence of God is associated with the glory of God. Key concept in, in Scripture. And so because of our sin, we are cut off from God's holy presence. Can somebody read Genesis 3? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So the, again, the point I'm trying to make here is that because of our sin, we're cut off from God's holy presence. This is true at the very beginning. Genesis 3. This is the fall. This is what... This is what this silly graph I'm trying to draw on the board is what this represents. So that our sin banishes us from the presence of God. That's not just Old Testament theology. It's also New Testament theology. Uh, who can read Romans 6 for us? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the ultimate problem of sin is not that we've done bad things or made bad decisions are that um, our behavior is not consistent with a fruitful, productive life, or we're ruining American culture, or um, we're going to be unhappy, or, you, or even that you can't have a good marriage if you keep acting like that. All of which are true, by the way. I think our personal sin affects all those things. That's where we started. Sin is so bad because it corrodes and disrupts everything. But the ultimate problem is not the earthly consequences of our sin, which are real. God disciplines His children. And so if you live different than the way God calls you to, there will be consequences for that. But the ultimate problem is that sin separates us from God. So our Creator, who we were meant to find ultimate fulfillment in relationship with, our sin separates us from His love. Right? 
So, this is why sin is such a big deal. So, the third point I want to make is that we are spiritually dead without God. We're spiritually dead without God. So, Ephesians 2, verse 1, who wants to read that for us? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 5. Alright, so we're spiritually dead without God. Alright, we're not going to read all these verses, but I just have a sentence here that I think it's important maybe to talk about. Like, so what does sin do to us and what does the Bible say? So the Bible says because of sin, we're spiritually sick. That's Isaiah 1. And blind. That's Revelation 3. We're ignorant of truth. That's Ephesians 4. We have darkened hearts. That's Romans 1. And we are in a state of enslaved. Romans 6. Powerless. Romans 5. Captivity. Colossians 1. So we cannot, be, we cannot be united to God by ourselves, right? We are separated from God because there's a part of our actions and attitudes and even our nature that separates us from a holy and loving God. Who, I said a minute ago, because of our sin, God can't love us. That's not exactly right. The, 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 the concept is we're never separate from God's love, but we are separated from His presence because of our sin. So does God love those who are eternally separated from, from Him? I think probably so. Uh, but... But the more important, not more important, a point I want to make this morning is that sin does separate us from God. And to be reunited to God, our sin must be dealt with, right? And so there's a, there's a problem here uh, that really is what the Bible is about. And then, so how do you do that, right? So we're separated from God. We recognize there's something wrong in humanity. I look at world history, there's huge problems. How can we make things better? Almost every worldview, whether it be um, the the postmodern secular worldview you get from, from our news, whether it be a religious worldview like Islam or Hinduism or uh, maybe even like a New Age uh, spiritualist worldview. Almost every worldview says, here are the things you do, right? Do these, do these seven steps. Um, change, your, uh, change your thinking to the, from the power of negative thinking to the power of positive thinking. On and on. Here are the things that you do. Um, but the Bible says something different, right? Biblical Christianity actually says that you cannot be united to God through good works. This is almost like a, we're really in a mess here, right? So, so I've, uh, I've committed these acts, my nature is corrosive, and I cannot be united to God again by kind of undoing it. You know, if, if your children get in trouble, you might say, you know, you forgot to make your bed today, so do these three or four things. Uh, but that's not the, the way it works with God, because God is holy, and your nature is corroded by your sin. He, God cannot be in the presence of sin. So this leads us to really where I want to land this morning is the tension of the gospel. And I really mean this. There is some tension here between the nature of God as a holy father and a loving father and our identity as his sinful creatures. So he's holy, so he can't be in the presence of our sin. But he's loving, so he can't help but love us. So how is that resolved? And I think, I think this is... a a real tension and problem and if we can't kind of feel this on a philosophical level we kind of miss the point of the Bible so let's look at this verse in Proverbs which is is interesting kind of tucked away in Proverbs 17 there's this uh, this statement acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent the Lord detests them both so once you imagine a judge sitting uh, you know up in his uh, judge seat 
you know, welcomes the court in and uh, someone comes before the judge and they are innocent of the crime. Well, the whole um, concept of the, our Western legal system is that it's, it's incredibly unfair and intolerable for innocent people to be um, punished. And so we, we really try to go to extremes even to prevent uh, punishing innocent people. Obviously, we get that wrong sometimes. That's kind of a whole another political conversation. But I just want to make the point of we don't want to punish innocent people, right? And so God is a good judge would act far greater than our judges we have in our culture and would never punish an innocent person. But of course, the problem is we're not we're no innocent people here, right? So everyone in the dock before God on Judgment Day, nobody's going to say, "I'm sinless, I'm holy, I can come in your presence based on my own merit," right? That, that's not the position that we're in. And so the Bible says that acquitting the guilty is something the Lord detests. So if you have a guilty person up on the stand, up in the dock, Chris talks about um, the. Uh, the shooting at that church in South Carolina today in service. And, you know, if we had a judge that said, you know what, you, you, in racial hatred you murdered all these people, and I know you did it, and you've admitted to it, and everyone saw you do it, but I, I like you, and so I'm just going to let you go free, we would throw that judge off the stand. That would be an outrage. That would not be justice. That would not be a good judge. And so that's the position God's in. Sitting here to judge, he's a good, the perfect judge, the righteous judge, and sitting in the dock are his creatures who, who, his creatures who he created, who he deeply loves, who are guilty. And so how does a judge respond to that? Here's the way, um, probably my favorite preacher, David Platt, I shouldn't say favorite preacher. Chris and Eric are my preachers. But David, somebody that I uh, listen to uh, you know, on podcasts and things like that. So here's how David Platt uh, describes this tension. The question our culture asks is, God, how can you punish sinners? How can you let people go to hell? We point the finger at his character. Question, how could he do that? You heard questions like that before? Your friends have asked you questions like that? You've thought of questions like that on television or maybe at a coffee shop with a non-Christian friend. You're kind of talking through life. That's the question we ask, right? God, how could you do that? The Bible does just the opposite. This is so, this, like, when I, when I realized this, it really turned my thinking on almost everything. The Bible is not answering that question. The Bible is actually interested in the opposite question. The Bible has a God-centered worldview we have a man-centered worldview. So we ask, God, how could you punish sinners? But the Bible is not worried about our, our righteousness. The Bible is worried about God's righteousness. The Bible asks the question, the Bible is not asking, how can God punish sinners? The, God, the Bible is asking, how in the world can God let rebels into heaven? How can God maintain his glory and let those who have belittled his glory into heaven? This is the tension with which the gospel confronts us. How can God show all of his attributes, his holiness and his mercy, his wrath and his love, his justice and his grace? How can he show all these things? The answer is, the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. Jesus is the only way this tension is revealed. There is no other religious system, no other religious philosophy that can bring this tension together, that can relieve this tension. Only Jesus Christ can, can do that. How can he do that? This is our last gospel truth. The beautiful answer to this tension of the gospel, to, to this tension in our life, is the gospel. So I don't want to steal the thunder of the next 
uh, 13 weeks as we talk about Christian theology. But I do have a little bit of time here this morning, so I do uh, want to take just a brief minute to talk about the answer to this tension. So if, you, if you've got your Bibles, turn uh, to Matthew 27, and let's talk real quick. As we're turning there, I just kind of want to remind everyone about this story, right? So God creates a good world in Genesis 1 and 2. Then in Genesis uh, 3, we distort the world. Sin enters the world. And then God works through the family of Abraham, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, sends kings and prophets, preserves Abraham's family all the way up until the birth of Christ. Abraham's great, 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 however many great grandson. That's why the people of Israel are so important. They must be preserved because God's plan, He promised Abraham three things. Promised Abraham a great nation. It's his family, the nation of Israel, came from Abraham. Promised him a great land. That's why land is so important to the uh, Hebrew people and has always been, because God promised Abraham that land. And then uh, God promised him that he would bless the whole world through him. And so that's Jesus, right? That's why Jesus is in the ancestral line of Abraham. That's the point of the story of the Old Testament, to preserve this line so that the Savior of the world will bless the whole world in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham thousands of years ago. Right? And so then Jesus lives this life that we could never live, right? Sinless, perfect life. He is the lamb, uh, the, the perfect spotless lamb that we couldn't be. And he dies the death that we deserve to die, right? So the sin, the punishment for your sin must be met, right? God will punish sin. And, and does he punish sin? Yes. In fact, he hates your sin so much that he punished it on his son on the cross. So somebody says, like, does God love me? Or, I'm sorry, does God hate sin? And the answer is, is yes. And how do you know that? You look at the cross. He hates your sin, my sin, so much that he was willing to, to have Jesus die on the cross to, to, pay the, to pay the price for your sin. So the question is, well, does God love me? And the answer is the same. Yes, look at the cross. How much does he love you? He loves you enough that he was willing to let Jesus die so that you could be in relationship with him forever. So the cross is not a story of either sin and wrath and punishment or love and grace. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why it transcends cultures and languages and people because it connects with their very heart and relieves this tension. The tension of the truth in your heart that you know you're a sinner and don't deserve relationship with God. And we put on good clothes, we sit in padded seats, we act a certain way in kind of suburban Western culture. But we know, despite all we act and pretend, we all know that's true. We don't deserve that kind of intimate relationship with our Creator. But we also have a deep desire to have that relationship. And so in the cross, you have uh, the relief of that tension. So one of my favorite verses in the Bible, though, is after the crucifixion. Right, so you have the crucifixion, Jesus is taken down, Joseph of Arimathea volunteers to let Jesus be buried in his tomb. Really neat story. This former Pharisee didn't believe in Jesus in his earthly life. Jesus actually, Joseph of Arimathea is actually the Pharisee, um, or, or one of the Pharisees along with Nicodemus that was um, curious about Jesus during his life. So um, Jesus is buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And then some of the Jewish leaders, and even Pilate to some extent, become worried. What if they come and try to steal the body? Uh, what if Jesus, I don't know, somehow escapes the tomb? And so there's this, this verse here, the last verse in, uh, in uh, chapter 27, last couple verses. Look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it, go make it as secure as you can. <laughs> so Pilate says, Why don't you go and make the tomb secure? Put a, put a stone over it and put some guards in front of it. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
Just imagine, the creator of the universe has given his life and died for the sins of the world. And the power that formed Pilate in the womb and created the Jewish religious leaders and created every person who will ever live on the planet is preparing to breathe life and conquer the grave of Jesus of Nazareth. And and Pilate's plan is, why don't we put a couple of guards at the tomb? Let's roll a rock in front of it. And so I I think here there's some, some deep irony in the idea that this wasn't going to get the job done, right? Because God loved you so much, there was nothing that was going to keep Jesus in the tomb. And, and so the story of your sin is how it was conquered uh, at the same time that death was conquered. So in the resurrection, the reason the Easter is such a big deal to Christians is because all of our sin and the great problem of death that we can't overcome by ourselves is conquered on that first Easter morning. So of course the guards were not able to keep the tomb secure and the power of God overwhelmed uh, overwhelmed the guards, overwhelmed the rock, and brought Jesus back to life. And so, the story of sin really doesn't end in a depressing way, but ends in a way of opportunity, which is that you have an opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to be reunited with God forever, and we have an opportunity to tell the world that they have the same opportunity, regardless, again, of what you look like, what you've done before, how far from God you think you are, how terrible of a person you think you are. Um, God's grace is extended even to you, and even if you don't think you deserve it. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us, and God, we just feel so inadequate to try to um, comprehend your love and to comprehend how much we don't deserve it. But Father, we thank you for the free gift of grace um, that gives us an opportunity to, to live a life that matters now and to connect with you for all of eternity. Thank you so much for your son. Thank you for his death on the cross that reunites us to you forever. God, may we be bold and courageous in the way that we believe and teach this message and the way that we share it with a, a world that so badly um, needs the gift that we've been given. Father, may we have an image of, of beggars who have found bread, who want to share the food and the nourishment we've found uh, with a world that's hungry. God, we thank you so much for all you've given us, especially Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.